Welcome to episode eight of Battle Rhythm, the podcast that tells you what you need to know about security and defense. I'm Stephanie von Latke, and my co-host is Steve Seidman. There was a lot to cover this time, from the UN General Assembly to climate change, Trudeau's fall from grace, and Steve's Petawawa adventure. On this episode, we also have a quick chat with Timothy Choi from the University of Calgary, who shares some of his secrets from the field. His work is on maritime strategy. Then we have our feature interview with Philippe Lagasse from the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton. He joined us to talk about defense procurement in Canada, and he also has a new book out. I should also mention that Phil has stolen Steve's thunder on this episode, so we're talking about Phil's peeves instead of Steve's peeves. Sometimes I try to escape you over the weekend, but I can't. You had lots and lots of pictures from Exercise Collaborative Spirit. Yes, uh, I was invited by the Department of Defense's Public Affairs Division to join a military exercise at Petawawa. It was a group of about 100 of us, including uh, junior defense D&D officers, the next generation of, of people across D&D. I was also including, uh, like there were some folks from General Dynamics, there was a firefighter who was in my squad. The point of the exercise is to have the military explain itself to the public, and they find a semi-random group of what they call stakeholders, and I guess we count as stakeholders, to share with them their experiences. And the way they do that is by giving us a whole bag of kit, including Battle Rattle, and then we uh, go out and get uh, basic training where they, we take turns firing various weapon systems, and getting trained on how to use a rifle and on how to clear a room. And then they take us by light armored vehicle to this location where we then storm a town to clear room by room of various people who have invaded this mock country. And after that, they take us by lav to the Ottawa River where we board rubber boats. And then we cross the river at a pretty wide point and seize a beach and then pour a fire onto the adversary while the other elements of our group go around and circle them. And then we take a Chinook helicopter ride back to the base. So it was a long day. There was a bit of that military thing of uh, hurry up and wait, but it was really interesting. I got to fire a, a shotgun and a machine gun and a pistol, all of which I had done before. In our first attack on the village, my group didn't see any enemies, so we were all kind of disappointed we couldn't shoot. But we made, more than made up for that when we assaulted the beach. I went through not only my five magazines, but then our battle buddies, the master corporals near us that were our chaperones for the day, gave us more magazines to fire onto our adversaries. So it was a very exciting day, and uh, I learned a lot about how the Army works. And when I went, because I talked about my trip to Pitawawa for exercise stalwart guardian in one of our previous episodes, but I didn't work that hard, and we didn't get to wear war paint. Yeah, well, we did work hard. It was We didn't have the full plates that go inside one's protective vest, but we had the protective vest. We had 
the mesh thing that goes on top of that that holds the magazines. Now, I'm, I'm not sure the magazines weigh as heavily as they usually do because I don't know if blanks weigh as heavily as real bullets. Just standing around, walking around with all the equipment, with the helmet on. The helmet is very heavy. You know, I could feel it. And we were all talking about how on this cool day of 20 degrees or so, we can only imagine what it'd be like to do this in Kandahar with a full backpack. The only stuff we had on our back was whatever snacks or foods and also our lunch and whatever else we were carrying. You know, they gave us canteens and all the rest, but it's not like what you need to to make it through a day on patrol. And then you mentioned the, the war paint. Well, that was one of the struggles because I really am lousy at arts and crafts. And so when they gave us the various paints, we didn't have mirrors at first. So our battle buddy just kept on giving us paint. When I looked at the mirror, I realized I I looked way too much like our prime minister. All right, that's an interesting segue. So we, we have to circle back though, because it's true that in our last episode, we both seemed to think perhaps naively, that Trudeau had been good for Canada's international image. And then Brown Face Gate happened. All right, so Brown Face Gate is really bad for Canada's international image. Uh, there were two articles that I read in the past few weeks that focused on Brown Face Gate, but I think highlighted what is more important about this issue is that really it's not just about Trudeau, but it's about Canadians in general. This is a moment for Canada to grapple with race and racism more broadly. The first article that really had an impact on me was the one by Nahid Nenshi, Calgary's mayor. The article was published in the Washington Post and it's called, I am Calgary's Muslim mayor. We can learn from Trudeau's brown face moment. The second article was published in the Globe and Mail on Saturday and was written by Omer Aziz, who was a policy advisor to the Minister of Foreign Affairs in the Trudeau government. And he He hit a bit of a similar tone, also insisting that this is bigger than Trudeau. He says, and I'll quote him here, this Canadian variant of racism is more insidious than the American. Protected by politeness, racism can be perpetuated under a shield of good intentions. So just thinking back about the foreign policy implications of this, all of this talk about Canada being back and the virtues of multiculturalism themes Trudeau spoke about during his day, the UN General Assembly in 2016, now sound a little bit hollow and it's just three years later. It goes back to some of the stuff we talked about with Hassan Minaj talking of Trudeau on his show, and we referred to that in the last podcast, that Canada talks a good game, but then there's some price that Canada might be paying for some hypocrisy, just as Trudeau talks about us leading the world in climate change, and then we're still producing lots of carbon emissions. Uh, We have in this situation, the Prime Minister of Canada being completely blind, seemingly, to the implications of what he's doing, that he likes to dress up, he likes to paint his face, and it leads to offending not just uh, the people of color, but also other people who care about these issues. And it sends a signal to the world that while we do take in more refugees, there's something else going on here that Canadians, or at least this one Canadian, is pretty blind on these issues. And I did see some people saying, well, Canada doesn't have racial problems, so we are less aware of brownface and blackface. And that's just foolishness, both because Canada does have racial problems, and we live in a North American culture where we see the American TV shows, which have made blackface wrong since 1970-something, if not 1990-something. All of Trudeau's life, he should have been aware that this is deeply offensive. And so it cuts against the, him looking good. If we had some political capital for being a pretty boy and being you know, a charismatic guy, well, that was his one edge. That edge is gone. 
Yeah, and it was a good year, I suppose, to skip the UN General Assembly. So Trudeau was absent. And of course, he can say, well, there's an election looming. But the timing of Brownface Gate and the UN General Assembly also makes it a good reason not to go. Yeah, I don't think that they were planning on going to the UNGA because in the past, when there are elections during this period of time, prime minister and the foreign minister tend not to go. I remember giving a talk in Massachusetts during the 2011 election because the consul general of Canada in Boston was restrained from speaking in public during the writ period. So I think this was going to happen anyway, that Trudeau and Freeland were going to avoid the UN. But certainly, it's a good thing they did avoid it because they would have had to answer some uh, very uncomfortable questions. Now, you paid more attention to the UNGA than I did while because I was wandering around the hills and streams of Petawawa. So uh, what's your take on what happened last week? I always like watching the leader's speeches at the UN General Assembly. And I was in my car in the passenger seat driving from Kingston to Montreal. So I had lots of time to listen to a few of them with my, with my husband. And so we picked... Russia, Ukraine, the United States, Iran, the UK, and Serbia. Had we had more time, I think we would have listened to all of them because uh, they're really quite entertaining to listen to. To see how a lot of these leaders just talk past each other. Russia doesn't even mention Ukraine, while President Zelensky spends most of his time talking about the war with Russia in the Donbass and the annexation of Crimea. He said, Russia is waging a war in the middle of Europe. Uh, then the Russian foreign minister, who's very experienced in this forum, Sergei Lavrov, did not focus on Ukraine, but instead attacked the United States and the West, trying to delegitimize the rules-based order. Rules, he said, were designed to benefit the West, but no one else. Okay, no surprise there. Then you have Trump, and he had a large audience. He must have been happy about that. He covers a lot of ground. It was actually quite dizzying. Iran, migration, abortion, LGBTQ rights, and of course, he talks about how much power the U.S. military has, thanks to him. And then the biggest surprise of all was Boris Johnson, at least to me. Uh, it was wildly entertaining and puzzling because... He was focusing so much on, on technology, and he was almost like a stand-up comedian up there, except I couldn't tell whether it was intentional or not. He starts off by ranting against Alexa and the Internet of Things. At one point, he says that your mattress will spy on you and that we have to watch out for digital authoritarianism. He also indulged in a bit of self-deprecating humor on Brexit, which was funny and then he goes back to weighing the trade-offs of tech it really felt like bojo should have been wearing an aluminum foil hat in <laughs> general assembly uh, but it really contrasted with with some of the other speeches that highlighted uh, major geopolitical shifts or particular tension points well i wouldn't have expected bojo to be a tin hat wearing kind of guy but i assume that if he's scared of his mattress i'll cover that with aluminum foil too <laughs> well, you bring up uh, Ukraine. It's funny because in the Trump era, time seems to both move so slowly and so quickly. But was the UNGA before or after the revelation that Trump tried to coerce the president of Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden's son as a part of a quid pro quo, even though he can't even figure out how to spell quid pro quo? It was all happening simultaneously. My bit on this impeachment thing is that this is the most naked, most serious uh, high crime or misdemeanor that Trump has thus far committed. And we can see the switch in the American Congress on this because everything else was sort of an extended period of time that he said, she said, things that happened before the election the obstruction case, the question is, is how do people feel about that? And, and while Mueller teed up Congress to start impeachment, they chose not to. But I think Nancy Pelosi 
succumb to the pressure and succumb to the realization that Trump was doing the same thing in the summer of 2019 that he did in the summer of 2016, which was he invited foreign support for his re-election campaign, and that refraining from starting impeachment was just going to encourage him to go further. So we've now seen the past week uh, the start of impeachment uh, processes. We've seen some Republicans, or at least retired ones, such as Jeff Flake, come out in support of it. We've seen the public opinion now in favor of an impeachment process, which is very different than it was two weeks ago. So we've seen a real sea change. I'm still a skeptic when it comes to conviction. That is, I don't think the Republicans in the Senate will agree, and you're going to need 67 votes in the Senate for Trump to be convicted and lose and to lose office. Most disturbingly today, Trump is now tweeting out other people's tweets about how removing the president of the United States could lead to civil war. And as somebody else put it on online, if you're the president of the United States, you have to prefer being removed from office than to civil war, because civil war is the worst possible thing. And if that's where your priorities is, you'd rather have a civil war than be impeached, then, then you desperately need to be impeached. This is uh, almost making me feel good about Canadian politics. Okay, and we, we've been talking on and off uh, on this podcast about what issues might uh, be big electoral topics and climate change obviously is going to be high on the agenda, especially now after it's been the feature of the UN General Assembly and also the huge climate strike uh, that happened on, on Friday. So we have people all across Canada and on campuses in major cities walking for the environment. Now we're a security and defense podcast, so this got me thinking about some angles we might wish to cover when it comes to the environment. How does the environment and climate change intersect with international security? Yes, and the one issue that keeps coming up is is the North, that we saw the liberals put together their platform this weekend. They highlight in the platform the North, that with the melting of the ice, there's going to be a greater concern about who's trafficking through the North and what are we doing about that. So I guess that's one issue that will, will come up. Yeah, another theme is the awful carbon footprint of defense departments and armed forces. That, of course, includes both the infrastructure, but also military operations. Stealth bombers need a lot of fuel, apparently. At Brown University, there was a study that was conducted. It's called the Costs of War Project. They actually ranked the Pentagon as though it were a country, and it would rank about 55th as a greenhouse gas emitter. So we can't dismiss that actually as an issue. 55th, I was expecting to be higher. Uh, I got to tell you, we were sensitive to this during the exercise because the Chinook helicopter by itself is an incredibly expensive piece of equipment in terms of how much fuel it consumes just warming up. And so we saw the same helicopter take all three platoons back to to base. And while we're watching this happen, we were very much aware that the military, the Kennedy military, spends a lot of money on fuel, that it's burning a lot of gas, doing a variety of things. And so it is contributing to climate change as well. So there's the two sides of the defense story. It's is climate change is something that we are doing and something that we are having to deal with. And if we want to get to uh, zero emissions in 2050, I assume that means that we'll either be flying electric helicopters or no helicopters at all. There's also something else in the Canadian context and another way in which climate change might affect defense policy. And that's been the uptick in fires and floods across the country, which Canadian soldiers have had to respond to. I know you'll remember our past episode that featured uh, General Jenny Carignan. She talked about the challenges associated with Operation Lentis and the recurrent deployment of both regular forces and reservists. Indeed. I was one of the folks filling bags in Ottawa last spring during the floods, and that was the second time in three years that 
uh, Ottawa had significant floods. The pace of these, as well as the fires, is going up. And so that we do ask the military to be responsible to, to help out in these matters. And I think we're going to see a higher pace of operations, which is then going to lead to, yes, more fuel being spent and more carbon being emitted. So it's a really nasty cycle. And in, in the 1990s, I can't help but to recall that when there was this trend of expanding the types of topics that we might be studying in security studies, there was this burgeoning literature uh, linking environmental de degradation and conflict. Global warming was tied to natural disasters, famine, water scarcity, which can all increase tensions in parts of the world that are already volatile. So this is by no means new, but it is also likely to get worse, not better. Absolutely. Uh, a friend of mine who went to the same grad school I did, Colin Hendricks, has been doing a lot of work on this problem of under what conditions does environmental shocks or does natural disasters lead to conflict? And the answer is not never. It's always going to be under some conditions. And so as we get more of these shocks, we're going to get more of this conflict, which is going to lead to more refugees and more interventions and more problems. So the future is going to be very busy for those of us who study defense and security stuff because the environment is going to foster more of this stuff for us. Uh, Steph, I'm not sure you got a chance to see the new liberal platform, but it had an interesting piece to it, which is that they're promising to create a new Canadian defense procurement agency. So they're going to rejigger procurement since it's been much of a challenge. And that's good timing for us because we interviewed Phil Lagasse last week about his workshop on agile procurement. And while he didn't know that this thing was going to happen, I think our listeners can, can listen to his discussion of the workshop and of his work to get an idea of some of the problems and challenges that the Liberals may now be addressing. Hello everyone, my name is Timothy Choi and I'm in the final year of my PhD at the University of Calgary Center for Military, Security and Strategic Studies. Thank you so much for being on Battle Rhythm, Tim. Yep, thank you very much for having me. We've interacted in the past since we're both on the board of the Canadian Naval Review, but we've not talked much about your dissertation. I assume it has something to do with maritime strategies, but can you please tell me and our listeners what your topic is? The full title of my dissertation is Maritime Strategies of the North, the Sea Power of Smaller Navies in an Era of Broadened Security. And the main focus of it is how have developments in international maritime law, particularly the 1982 United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, or UNCLOS, affected the ways that smaller navies carry out their business. How did you come up with the idea, the original idea for your dissertation? Well, so back when I was doing my master's, I also here at the University of Calgary, you know, I was working um, under Rob Hubert, uh, who's still my supervisor. Anyway, um, I was in his class on Canadian Arctic security, and for his paper, I compared our currently uh, being built um, the Harry the Wolf Arctic Patrol ships. Um, how do we come? How do they compare with um, recent developments by their peers? So, and you know, as I was looking at this, you know, I saw that you know the Danish. The Danes and Norwegians, they had some massive new um, investments in their navies. And I was like, well, what's the deal with that? And so I really wanted to look into that, um, you know, the procurement of these new assets in um, my PhD. But then as I was doing my comprehensives, it became evident that I could do more than just, you know, a strict empirical comparison or explanation of, you know, procurement practices by these countries. And there was room um, in the literature to make it a bit more theoretical. 
you know, make it speak to theories of control and power at sea, particularly from smaller navies uh, in peacetime. And so that's sort of how I got to research topic. And so for my case studies, I'm looking at three different Arctic countries with three different institutional approaches to balancing erstwhile peacetime and wartime duties, Denmark, Norway, and Canada. But because most of the English language sea power literature tends to focus on wartime issues between larger navies, I'm using a lot of Danish and Norwegian secondary source materials combined with some archival work and probably most interesting and funnest part of the dissertation, uh, field research on board some of these Scandinavian naval ships to observe for myself just how naval forces conduct patrols in peacetime and prepare for emergencies at sea. Thinking too about your data collection efforts, which um, must have been extensive, I'm assuming they were easier in Canada than for the cases of Denmark and Norway? Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> um, so for Canada, thankfully, a lot of work has already been done on, in these grounds. So I actually haven't spent as much time um, drilling up for a particular new information. It's mostly just um, helping see a contrasting sort of comparison perspective. But for Denmark and Norway, a lot of that was indeed some of the reasons why it took, I'm taking so long with this is getting security and clearances. I was on board two different um, vessels. The first ones I was on board was um, the Norwegian Coast Guard vessel, the KV Tor, uh, named Norwegian God of Thunder. And that was interesting because Tor was a ship responsible for territorial waters patrol, so not offshore. And that was so unexpected on my part. You know, I don't get to choose which ships I get to go on and get whatever they gave me, you know, but it was a very pleasant and um, unexpected insights into, okay, so how does a Coast Guard, which in Norway is part of their Navy, what do they do within the country's national boundaries? And they do a lot of, you know, police work, really customs, checking sailors, making sure they have all the correct papers, um, protecting their fish farms from curious tourists and a lot of stuff that, you know, in a lot of countries, at least on land, you expect to be done by non-militarized asset. And then following that, one of the Danish um, naval ships responsible for Greenland um, and sovereignty patrols off of Greenland. And that was a nice 10-day uh, cruise, <laughs> as it were, where, they, where I joined them in Iceland and then they sailed me, dropped me off in uh, Nook in Greenland. And in between, we hit some pretty heavy weather, which I was glad to say I did not feel overly sick about. So I've got to but enjoy seeing those six meter waves and uh, <laughs> going bobbing up and down. I'm pretty impressed. Research on board the ships in all three countries. That is very impressive. I have to ask just for Steve, who's not here right now, but which ship had the better food out at sea? <laughs> well, I think the best one was um, definitely the Danish one, mostly because the Norwegian one was a bit smaller. And Wow, I, I'm going to suggest right now that as a prose dissertation project that you write a handbook on doing field work on ships. <laughs> I would love to do something like that. <laughs> of course, navies in the north, you know, they do support a lot of civilian projects like science, like science research. And so they're used to having natural scientists, but, you know, very rarely do they ever have, you know, people like me who's, you know, are studying them as opposed to using them as merely a platform for other things. Even the um, Civ Mill coordinator in Danish Arctic Command said that I was probably the first one with whom they had to actually get a security clearance for because I'll be going to, you know, more sensitive spaces for the ships. Well, I'm sure you had a very convincing pitch uh, and it's been an interesting journey. <laughs> so let me ask you about the next steps. You're in the writing stages. You're done with your cruises. What's next for you? Here's a little 
pitch then, you know, for anyone listening to this who might have need of someone who lives and breathes naval affairs from the political down to the technical level and has a pretty healthy grasp of social media and visual communication, give me a shout. (laughs) (laughs) I can see now how they let you on board those ships. (laughs) Very convincing. And Tim, this has been absolutely delightful. Thank you so much for coming on Battle Rhythm. Oh, no, thank you. Phil Agasse, welcome to Battle Rhythm. Phil is a colleague of mine at the at Carleton. He is also the co-director of the procurement theme of the CDSN. And uh, Stephanie and I are here uh, wanting to interview you about a variety of things, including your recent workshop. And then we'll talk a little bit more about some of your other work. Oh, well, first, uh, thanks for having me here. It's uh, exciting to be on, on Battle Rhythm so, and to be part of the network. So thanks to you both. So I picked up on the title of the workshop, Agile Procurement, and it sounds a little bit like an oxymoron to someone who knows what's been going on with procurement in Canadian politics. And can you explain the concept and the idea behind the workshop theme? So the idea was simply we know that procurement uh, in Canada tends to be a fairly protracted process, and it has to go through a number of gates, and a lot of those gates uh, exist for very good reasons. Namely, you want to ensure that project is properly identified as a capability gap that exists for the Canadian Forces. You want it to have policy cover. Then as it makes its way through options analysis, you want to thoroughly study uh, what you can do, what the best way or different options that you have in order to address that capability gap. Then it passes through several other gates, and by the time it enters into definition, there again, it can take a bit of time to contract award. So, you know, I, I don't have the exact stats available to me at a given time, but um, this can range anywhere from 10 to 15 years in the past. Right, And when you're dealing with something as rapidly moving as computer systems, IT, communication systems, whatever it is, if you follow that kind of traditional time and space and and trajectory, you could end up wanting to buy something in options analysis, so setting your requirements, and then by the time that you come to contract award, those requirements are outdated. Right, so how do you kind of get around that? So that's it's something that the government of Canada overall is trying to tackle. This isn't exclusive to the Defense Department by any means, but uh, given the the amount of money involved in defense acquisition, it obviously is a little bit more challenging. Uh, similarly, because weapon systems or communication systems are far more sensitive, there's the expectation of greater amount of scrutiny there as well. So really, the the purpose of the workshop was to try and say, okay, in spite of all these reasons why defense procurement is something that's meticulous and has to be overseen and and has to be um, carefully considered, uh, is there a way to make it a little bit more flexible so that the Canadian Forces get a certain type of equipment at the highest point of technology when they need it? And I guess one of the things that was striking in the presentations was that, of course, all the procurement projects that take really long or really expensive get all the news. Did you get a sense that from from their presentations that the stuff that doesn't make the news is actually doing better, that it's doing pretty well, that there are things that, that we can buy as long as it doesn't catch the eye of the parliament or the press? Well, I think that's always been a little bit of the uh, the myth of uh, Canadian defense procurement. We tend to seize on the, the big projects and the, the difficulties that they encounter, but there's a number of things that are happening below the media radar, below the academic radar, that are just trudging along and fairly well. And certainly in light of Strong, Secure, Engaged, where uh, there's quite a bit of money that's being spent and a real determined effort to spend that money, a number of the initiatives there are actually moving along fairly well. So as uh, the chief financial officer said in the past, uh, when you actually look at where's money is being spent and how it's being spent, initiatives are actually working 
more or less the way they should. In the past, you might have made the, pro- the case that really the issue was lack of funds. Now that you re-inject those funds, you're going to see some movement. Now, I can't get into the particulars of all of them. The general perception that it's broken, always been broken, is a perception that's maybe you know, 10, 15 years out of date. I think things are better, but as we discussed at the workshop as well, uh, we also need to be more, or encourage the department to be more transparent about where things are at, right, in order to have a better understanding on the part of the public about what the situation is with procurement. One of the striking things about what you just said there and also I I sat in on this workshop is that when the defense review was being discussed they were reaching out to the the academic community and everybody else Steffi and I were both at some of these events these workshops these roundtables to discuss these things and there's a lot of cynicism around the table about whether this was a meaningless exercise just for PR and looking backwards it seems that while maybe some of the results were probably built into the process it does seem to be the case that the emphasis on improving procurement, on delegating more authority. I think that that those things that came out of the defense review were actually pretty meaningful in affecting, a, you know, we, we will not see new jets anytime too soon. The ships will roll off whenever they roll off. But on all these other projects, the, the defense review was meaningful in, in moving things forward and in, in some of these things are have less of a profile. Right. I, I think the, the defense review, one of the key things it did was uh, set a more predictable uh, budget, uh, an investment plan, uh, an accounting scheme that allows the Defense Department to have a greater amount of flexibility, so an accrual scheme over a certain period of time that allows it to have predictable funding of upwards of $100 billion. So all that makes an enormous difference when you're planning. Now, it's not going to take all the problems away by any means, but again, I think uh, when we think about defense procurement, we have to be clear about what time period that we're talking about. Some things have gone very well in the past, other things less so, but even on your example of the ships. The fact of the matter is, I mean, it's uh, a, a type has been selected. Uh, we'll see how it goes from there, but it certainly isn't just flailing around. I mean, it's not the the impression that we sometimes get is is skewed by our our memories of the past. I had a question about the agile procurement equation. So you mentioned the technological considerations, and you also mentioned the regulatory considerations. There's also alliance considerations, and how do you factor in interoperability? In terms of uh, defense procurement in Canada, uh, does Canada absolutely need to get the same stuff as the U.S. and NATO allies? That, that one's a bit of a tricky one because it is a, a policy consideration, and so it puts me in a bit of a, a sticky situation. But <laughs> uh, All I'll say is Canadian defense policy has been fairly consistent that we want to be interoperable. You can debate on the margins just how interoperable you want to be in particular systems, but if policy says that you want to be seamlessly interoperable, uh, as we've tried to be in the past, then that comes with certain capability requirements. When we read that policy, and I guess this is a point that I really want to make and that I hope that our theme as part of the network will flush out or flush out a little bit more in the future, policy matters. It really does. Like when you decide what it is that you want your forces to do, they aren't just these abstract concepts. They actually have consequences for the people who are setting requirements from their understanding of what it is that they're being told to do. And so the way you frame policy and what you tell the Canadian Armed Forces you want to do has a massive impact on how they end up setting up requirements and what they they expect that uh, the resources that they'll be given to accomplish what they're supposed to accomplish. And in the agility uh, discussion, I think it's fairly important as well because our allies, particularly the United States, move very quickly on some of these key technological upgrades and communication upgrades. And so it does create a challenge for the rest of the alliance of saying, okay, how do we, if we want to remain fully interoperable, how do we 
adjust our own systems in order to enable that. And as someone who's not on the independent panel and can speak a little more freely, this raises trade-offs between, well, the easiest way to do it to keep up with Americans is to buy American stuff, but that's problematic if one of the conditions for buying equipment, making decisions, is it, what does it impact for the Canadian economy? Does it feed the uh, Canadian defense industry? Does it provide jobs in places in Canada? If those are your conditions, that kind of contrasts with the priority of buying stuff that's most interoperable because, you know, we could be buying frigates by the United States or some other weapon system from the United States, but then those aren't jobs in Canada. Right. I mean, I think it's uh, it's often a question of degrees, right? You can involve Canadian industry in a lot of different ways. Currently, the the approach is more of a value proposition, uh, so as opposed to necessarily buying the kit from a Canadian company per se, you just want to ensure that when you're buying something, you can either that there, there's an investment made in Canada that's uh, commensurate with the investment that you're uh, putting down to acquire it. And you know, at the end of the day, if that involves in-service support or, or uh, having Cana- American firms kind of set up in Canada to do components or whatever it happens to be, that can also be a net benefit. But yeah, I mean, obviously there's there's trade-offs in terms of speed and cost that, that surround all this. And that's a little bit there again of the question of, of agility. Governments, rightfully, I would say, want to keep an eye on what the military is buying and why they're buying it. But there's also the question of okay, how do we do that while still ensuring that we have the latest capabilities when we need them? Yeah, I noticed you perked up and were very happy when somebody else cited your favorite triangle, which was what, speed, cost, and accountability? No, time, time, scope, and cost. So the iron triangle, which a lot of people kind of know and think is pretty simplistic, but it is true, and it people need to be reminded that a lot of these projects still exist within those parameters, right? So you can you can trade off within those three, but it's pretty hard to, uh, to perfect all three of them at once. Yeah, I wanted to ask about just the workshop and how it worked mm-hmm. to bring in uh, academics together with DMD officials, both civilian and military. This is something we're trying to do more broadly with the CDSN. So in your opinion, did that formula work and what were some of the synergies, not that word, but what were some of the synergies? Yeah, well, I mean, I've always kind of taken the position, and maybe it puts me as a bit of an outlier, but ever since I started working within a D&D context, one of the things that's always kind of bugged me is that academics are very good at kind of describing high-level stuff, and so they're good at kind of commenting on policy, and they're good at commenting on strategy. Where they have difficulty because they don't have all the information is more on kind of operational level, administrative level things, or tactical level things. And therefore, a lot of the times when academics kind of comment, they're, they're guessing about what's happening internally. And so it's not that they're dumb people. It's just that they don't have all the information. So one of the things I wanted to do as part of uh, this note's first workshop was say, okay, we have seven years, right, to bring academics together and to discuss this in advanced research. But let's first take a breather and ask those that work in this area day to day with a significant amount of information, why don't they first have an opportunity to share some of that with the academics, right? So let's, as a first step, let's educate ourselves and avoid the academic habit of simply going out there and, uh, you know, pontificating about things with half the information. I feel like I'm being subtweeted right now. No, I, look, I mean, the, the reality is we all do it. And this gets back to the transparency thing, right, is part of the what I think is important for the network overall is to ensure that academics and decision makers and practitioners actually speak to one another a little bit more often so that we can have better commentary, right? And by the same token, more informed commentary. And the, the initial reaction of that is going to be, oh, well, you're just going to be kind of 
co-opted by the military. No, I mean, it's, it's not about that. It's simply about you can make, you can better contribute to debates and you can make better recommendations or even better critiques if you're working with a better set of facts, right? And the, the trade-off and the benefit that the government gets from it is that you're better off having academics who have quite a loud uh, microphone be better informed when they're commenting on things. So that was really the initial kind of idea in this workshop mm -hmm. was to get that piece going. And then in future ones, we can make it a, a greater balance between research, practice, and go from there. Mm -hmm. And I noticed you also focused the groups on particular problem sets, maybe a case study with the chief of staff army strategy. Right. So in order to kind of give an example of how agile procurement might work in practice or what one of the problems is, we, we had the opportunity to have a land command systems presented to us as, okay, here's something that we're trying to do that gives you an example of some of the problems that we're facing. And also some of the opportunities, like how why, how might we make it better? And I, I got to say, I was really impressed that the people that came over from government were pretty high level folks. It wasn't just the lowest ranking desk officer who has disposable time. It was people who are in decision making places who were really engaged in this conversation. So it was good to see that our first effort to have engagement with the other side was a really good one. Yeah, I think there is a, a recognition on the part of a number of people that uh, it's to both our benefits to have those discussions. And I hope that's one of the, the long-term consequences of this network is that the suspicion or walls that, that exist right now between the practitioner and academic community are not torn down, but at least are more permeable. And that would really, I think, benefit both sides. If we had slats just like the Trump's wall, where people can climb up and down all the time. Yeah, I think that's what we're looking for. Yeah, that's not a bad thing. Phil, you have a new book out, and it's called Canadian Defense Policy in Theory and Practice, and it's very thick. <laughs> it's a very big book. And sure. the pictures, the, the graphics are in color. Yes. So first, a plug. It's part of our uh, Canada and International Affairs series of Paul Grave McMillan. So if you have things that you want to contribute on Canada and international affairs broadly defined, please come see us. Send us your proposals. We're interested. We're open. Uh, as Steve just mentioned, we actually have high production quality. Any uh, university library that's subscribed to the Springer Network uh, has the book available online for your students as individual chapters. So it's, it's really a, a great way to, to publish on Canada and international affairs. The book, uh, I co-edited with uh, Thomas Junot and Sir Jan Fusetic uh, at U of O, uh, is about, I'd say, two, three years in the making. We originally had this idea a little while back, and we got a D&D Departmental or Defense Engagement Grant to host a workshop where we brought the authors together, and the idea was to have uh, people working in D&D, Canadian Armed Forces, some retired Canadian Armed Forces as well, and academics working on a bunch of different issue areas. And those who have been working in this field for a while may remember uh, a book from the 1990s of David DeWitt and David Leighton Brown, which was kind of the, the Bible of Canadian defense studies for a while. And so the idea was to say, okay, well, you know, we're, we're nearing a good 20 years since that volume. Maybe it's time to put another one out. And we tried to cover as many subject areas as we could. Those that are traditional, so uh, Jim Ferguson and Andrew Sharon kind of dealing with uh, the North American component, but also new ones, uh, indigenous peoples, gender, uh, lobbying that hadn't really been covered all that much in the Canadian defense literature, accountability, which 
was uh, something that I'm quite concerned with. The role of law in deployment decisions and those type of considerations that hadn't been dealt with as much in the previous literature. So it ended up being a big book, but I hope it's a good book. Well, it's the New Testament, so uh, therefore it's, it's supposed to be big and new. Is this something that somebody outside of academia should pick up? Uh, I, I would think so. We, we really lobbied hard to uh, get a good price. <laughs> so <laughs> it's available as an ebook for uh, $40 Canadian dollars, which is pretty good considering that you get 400-some-odd pages of material for that. We make it accessible. We try to the best that we could. And, yeah, it covers a lot of different things. I mean, it, as much as uh, we got Andrew Potter in there looking at media and defense, which is really interesting. we got public opinion polling from J.C. Boucher. we got Kim Nossel kind of looking at the geostrategic context of Canada. You're in there looking at uh, civil military relations. And a comparative perspective. Yeah, comparative perspective. We have strategic culture. We have kind of how strategy is made. We have... A defense economics discussion, the defense industrial base, we have defense procurement. So really, we tried to cover as many things as we could. Uh, we have junior scholars, we got more senior scholars. So yeah, I think for 40 bucks, you get upwards of 22 chapters. That's a pretty good deal. And uh, if you have any interest in any topic in Canadian defense, this is the book you should pick up as a starter for trying to figure out anything that you want about this scene. Yeah, and I hope that when we were going through the review process, one of the reviewers encouraged us to bring in uh, an outside perspective. So we had Lindsay Rodman come and kind of give an American perspective on Canadian defense, which was a useful contribution. We thank the reviewers for kind of pushing us in that direction. I think it, it further bolsters the book. And look, it's a, a real mix. It's a, an effort to cover many, many different bases. The sh- chapters are you know fairly tight. They're about five, 6,000 words, but uh, useful for undergraduate courses, graduate courses, and as you said, somebody who's coming at Canadian Defense for the first time will find it as a, a fairly good primer. I'm sold. <laughs> Get a copy today. There we go. <laughs> so you're well known for your work on defense, and you also do a lot of research on the Crown yep. and the Westminster system. Yep. I wanted to ask, and this is because I'm familiar with your Twitter persona, yep. but what are some common misunderstandings that get on your nerves? Uh, but which <laughs> topic? Because I know this could be a long conversation. But let's say this is not Steve Speeves segment, but Phil's piece. Well, I would just say that we're we're not the United States. Uh, we have a different political system, and therefore always be wary of importing American language and American concepts. And now he's subtweeting me again. No, I mean, it's not just you. I mean, I, I think it's a number of people kind of approach Canada that way simply because it's it's kind of attractive, right? We see a lot of our American news outlets in Canada, and we pick up that language. And language is important, though, because it shapes your perceptions of things, and it shapes how you understand your system. And so if you're not careful about it, you end up ultimately distorting or at least bringing an evolution to your system of government that uh, may not correspond with the structural features that it has. And that's really, I think, my biggest pet peeve is we'll have uh, situations like we might have uh, next month here in Canada where the popular vote as an aggregate may not reflect the number of seats uh, that each party has. The, the party that governs may or may not be the, the party that won the most seats, uh, depending on what the outcome is. So just understanding government formation and having a little bit more care and caution about what happens on election night, I think, is useful. And I wrote a blog post for those that are interested on policy options about how we can improve just election night coverage. And on my own blog post, www.legacyp.com, you can find my uh, Canadian government pedantic style guide where I go do a deep dive on better ways that we can talk about Canadian government. I get that. That was very informative. (laughs) 
And I guess like one of the examples is don't use prime minister-elect. Yeah, prime minister-elect refers to kind of president-elect. It's tr- mandates, I think, is the, the other one that really gets on my nerves. Like, it's such a dangerous term when you're a government trying to get legislation passed or anything like that, and you're trying to push something through and to declare that you have a popular mandate to do something when you probably don't even have over 50% of the popular vote. And most of the research that we have shows that voters don't vote for particular issue areas. They may not vote in favor of a particular part of your platform. And as we're seeing in in the UK, just because over 50% of people vote for something doesn't necessarily mean that the legislature then just kind of lies down and doesn't do anything. We're still expecting Parliament to hold governments to account, to scrutinize decisions, and uh, I would expect nothing less of ours. Although, as you and I have discovered, Steve, we have some work to do on getting a little bit more of a robust Canadian Parliament. I think the last question I have for you is, we're recording this on the 24th of September, which is the same day as, as when the British court ruled that proroguing by Boris Johnson was, uh, what's the term to use? Not good. <laughs> uh, and, and Justiciable and unlawful. Wow. And so I'm glad you said that, not me. Uh, you indicated that in our own conversations that you were not surprised by this. Can you explain uh, both the decision and, and why you expected it? Uh, so if you look at the trend lines in the United Kingdom, I would say since around the, the Blair government and the Iraq war, the tendency, I would argue, has been towards a real uh, effort to curtail executive power to make the executive far more subservient to the House of Commons and as well to increase the ability of the courts to review acts of the executive. Which makes the, the British system in the opposite direction as the American system. So again, American system is a poor comparison. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting trend lines. And so this is, occurs around the same time as there have been a number of constitutional reforms in the UK since 2003, curtailing executive decision-making or at least placing far more statutory control over executive discretion, greater backbench independence from the executive as well. And interestingly, in the case of the courts, um, I mean, this might strike people as odd, but one of the things, one of the reasons I thought they were going to rule the way that they did was a case called Evans, a little while back now, where the court was asked to rule on whether or not Prince Charles's letters to ministers should be uh, accessible under uh, the Access to Information Law. And what was interesting in that case was the statute clearly said that it, they shouldn't be accessible, but the court kind of ignored the, the plain reading of the statute and did it anyway. And you're kind of looking out there at that going, this is a court that's really going to do its own thing on executive power. It's part of a larger movement. Like The law is interesting and all the rest of it, but as a political scientist studying this stuff, you're kind of looking at the trend lines going, you know, it's all well and good to, to kind of debate the legal niceties, but they're determined to reign in the executive. And so that's where I, I kind of rightly predicted where this was going to land. Since you mentioned your role as a political scientist, I just want to ask one last question, and it's how you balance... Your day job, which is here as a political scientist, and also your role on the independent review panel. With much fatigue. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's, it's it's an amazing job. I've learned an incredible amount uh, reviewing something like 50 different procurements to date, providing advice or helping provide advice to the minister, say about 25 of them now. I've been doing that for about five years. But look, uh, getting back to the SSE discussion, there's a lot of these projects that are moving. So we, we do a lot of work. It uh, takes up a good chunk of my time. Whoever inherits it from me in the academic community is going to have 
have a fun time too. <laughs> but look, it's uh, it's always difficult because even a podcast like this, I have to constantly be aware of: am I saying something that makes me look biased, or is am I commenting on policy, or things like that? But I push the, the envelopes simply because if we're going to have greater discussions between policymakers and academics in this country, then frankly, both sides have to get more used to people kind of living in both worlds. And if I end up, you know, getting fired for that, well, <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll have to have a better discussion about what the boundaries are. And you have tenure at Nipsia, so you can get fired from your government job and you can still feed your beautiful family. I mean, let me just be clear. I don't think I've done anything that merits being <laughs> uh, I, th I think I've stayed within the limits, but, you know, I think it's healthy to, for those, those of us who are academics who also hold public office to not suddenly shut down entirely. You know, publishing this edited book, holding this workshop... I, I clear things with the ethics commissioner. I make sure that you know the the walls and boundaries and hats are, are worn properly. Uh, but if we want more academics involved in this type of work, then we have to kind of get used to making that balance. Okay, that's great advice. Uh, thank you very much, Phil, for joining us on Battle Rhythm, and thanks for helping carrying a good chunk of the CDSN load over the past couple of years. My pleasure, and thanks for having me. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments, and so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS, or email them to cdsn.rcds at outlook.com. Thank you.